Yes, let's. 20 people there. Yeah, let's, let's, well, let's kick off to use the, to use football term. So let's quickly thank everyone for, for, uh, for joining us. Um, obviously it's World Cup time. We want it to be topical. England have just qualified for the round of 16. We're delighted to have so many, uh, people who are knowledgeable within the, field of football. I'll give them really, really quick introductions, if I may. I'll just go clockwise, as you are on, on my screen. Uh, Atoll, Atoll Thompson, who's based over in uh, Aspatar in Qatar, doing his PhD, doing an awful lot of work on football boot and surface interaction and metatarsal stress fractures. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, David Brown, who um, has only been a podiatrist three years, but was a f- professional footballer for, I believe, 17 years prior to that. Um, Played for a little-known team known as Manchester United under a little-known manager, Sir Alex Ferguson. So great to have you, David, and get get your perspective, not just a podiatrist, but as a player, an ex-player as well. Uh, Dr. Lindsay Hill, who's worked extensively within uh, football men's and women's, women's uh, England team, actually, and um, really looking forward to getting her take on on, on if there's any way, uh, differences between men and women within football uh, and how we treat them. And, and last, but obviously no means least, uh, Trevor Pryor, and to be honest, if you need if you need me to introduce Trevor, you, you, you just really don't belong here. You should log off now. I mean, he's been in the world of football probably longer than most of us have, have been alive. But there's a strong rumour he's about 97 years old. He's just got really good moisturiser <laughs> that he uses. So, uh, Trevor, Trev, thank you so much for joining us because I know you're a very busy man as well. So, we've got questions that people have sent in for all of you, but we've also got more um sort of global uh, questions that you can all pitch in on. So we'll, we'll start with those, if we may, and I'll just kind of pick and choose who I send them over to. Um, first off, uh, we might as well start with you, Trev, um, if that's OK. And a uh, question came in saying, what are the the biggest challenges that we as podiatrists may face uh, when we're assessing, managing, treating? Uh, uh, I, you just froze there. Am I? I, I'm not frozen, am I? No, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, Actually, I'm, I'm probably going to surprise you uh, with the answer because I think the the biggest challenge is uh, philosophy and buying. So uh, the role of the podiatrist within a professional football club is really reliant on the medical team believing in the role and the players actually buying into it. Uh, I don't know where Dave found this, but I, I always found that you could do something for a player and they'd be doing fine and a, a year down the line you might ask them, uh, if they were still using orthotics or doing whatever, and I said, no, no, I had a bad game, I stopped using them. Right? I mean, it is a very, very fickle world, and, and getting people to buy into it. And, and in reality, I mean, uh, I mean, our role is multifactorial, isn't it? So you, you start with your routine stuff, because it's definitely a problem with the players. You move on to biomechanics and diagnosis and the more complicated stuff, and, and at times some surgery. But in reality, a lot of our interventions are going to be orthotics. And if you're wearing your boots one to, size, uh, one to two sizes too small, uh, fitting something that's going to do anything uh, inside a boot is a challenge. Uh, and it's a multi-directional game. So what's the role of the orthotic in the boot? Uh, I think that's an underestimated challenge. Awesome. Um, David, we might as well come to you. And, and same question, right. obviously, you can, give, you, you can give perspective from both angles if, if, if you wish. Um, it'd probably be interesting yeah. if you did. I'd, I'd agree with Trevor on that, that it, it is difficult um, for players sometimes to to buy into um, things like orthotics because there's, there's such a wide range. 
Um, and within your football boots, you don't you don't want any space. You want them to be really tight. So fitting an orthotic is is very difficult. And, and, and like Trevor said, if there's any sort of negative experiences with that, players are, are very quick to to just you know just get rid of the orthotics because usually they haven't paid from they haven't invested the money in them. Um, it's usually through the club. So you know we've we've just had experiences with a couple of players where they've been sent off to get very expensive orthotics, brought them back didn't feel great after a couple of days and that's it, they're gone. And Sometimes from a player's point of view, then you, you can be very close-minded to think, well, I'm not going to go down that route again, regardless of whether it's a different pair of orthotics or uh, a different method of doing things. Um, Lindsay, same within, same within women's football, do women have the same uh, challenges that men do with regards to treating them? Yeah, I would say footwear, the football boots themselves are probably the biggest challenge because most of the football boots are designed for the man's foot shape as well. So you don't get female-specific football boots or, you know, there aren't many of them. And so you do get even more issues, particularly across the forefoot. So you get a lot more problems with like bunions, first MTP joint pain, blisters. And a lot of that is because really the football boot is designed particularly for... Um, the male foot shape so that adds additional problems for the female players um, and I would just say the, the the girls to be honest though are very keen to try anything because they have to this it doesn't seem to come as easily to the female game so um, a lot of the clubs they don't have the funding they don't have the sponsorships or they didn't do back when I started in women's football so they were they seemed a bit more grateful for everything that you did for them, if that makes sense. So they were more um, willing to give things a try if they thought it was going to help. Oh, and, and finally, Atoll, I mean, you're over in the uh, in, in uh, Doha, in the Middle East. Uh, any cultural differences or same, same challenges apply worldwide? Um, yeah, good question. I'd say similar challenges. The, the space, number one, just wearing boots that are too small um, certainly applies. Um, any other challenges out there there are probably come to later there's certainly um, some uh, different surfaces and you know warm season grasses and different climatic conditions and things to consider and we can probably come to that a little later on um, it's probably not a not a challenge but in terms of orthoses something to be mindful I think as podiatrists and as Trevor um, rightly alluded to it's a it's a multi-directional sport um, and I've seen at times um maybe some orthosis with really quite aggressive prescriptions that are for something like plantar fasciopathy. And then we've had uh, these players kind of, of course, injuries multifactorial, but go on to develop issues at the lateral side of their foot, let's say, after after having them in and, and really spiking their load with them. So being told to use them straight away for training and things. And, um, so I think we're just mindful of, of one, what we prescribe for a multi-directional sport and, and two, the, the message that comes with prescribing them, how they how, how they get used to them. We forgot to, the, 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 best the, ever, the best excuse I've ever had for a player not to wear a pair of orthotics is, you know, if you have a pair of rigid orthotics, sometimes it can make the upper of the shoe, it bulges in the upper slightly. And he said he wasn't going to wear them because he went to side foot the ball into the goal, open goal, and it hit the edge of the orthotic and went over the bar. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's happened a few times. 
think yeah, I mean, is a big thing as well with, with, with any sort of intervention like that. The timing's a big thing because if it's if it's sort of halfway through a season or during the season, you, you're less likely to start messing about with things from a player's point of view. Absolutely. Uh, if it's pre-season and you can you can sort of start to work things in, then, then maybe you've got a chance. But during the season, you, you're not willing. I know Joey Barton, you know, when he was at Newcastle, introduced orthotics and he was quite against it. But Sam Allardyce was quite for it and he sort of ended up falling out about it because he broke his metatarsal and blamed it on the orthotics and it. It probably wasn't that that did it, but it was that intervention at that time wasn't wasn't probably the right thing to do. Yeah, as a, as a, as a nice segue actually onto one of the other questions that came in, um, as you just mentioned uh, pre-season there, David. And one of the questions that came in is uh, rather than that when we see injured players, what about when we get uh, if we get asked to go in and do sort of pre-season checks, pre-season screening? So I just wonder what the, the panel's thoughts were on um, on uh, on how how you screen a a uninjured squad, uh, you know, what sort of things should we be including in our screening with all of the kind of grey area of whether we think screening is is indeed appropriate or what it what it tells us. Uh, I might start with Atta. Um, Atta, I might start with you on this one just because you got just because I saw you went for a walk and I thought I stitched you up a bit. But, um... Oh, guys, I'm really sorry if the music's piping through. Here. <laughs> um, um, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. It's, it's um, a great... you, I, I know you do a lot of screening, and I know I, I um, recently we were recently talking offline about this for a, for a squad that I'm screening, and I was just trying to get your your take on it. What sort of stuff do you do in your screening, and, and have you got a, a scientific rationale for it? Oh, thanks a lot, Ian. Yeah, it's not a you're welcome. You're welcome. Not a contentious <laughs> area whatsoever. Um, uh, we don't actually do a lot of screening. We do we do screening in a um, multidisciplinary type way. So we have strength and conditioning coaches and physios, and we certainly have probably like most um, Premier League clubs these days, um, you know, jumping regime on four stacks, um, certain musculoskeletal um, biodex tests and things like that that go on. Um, but from a foot at foot level, um, we have an, an instrumented treadmill. We use quite a lot in the tread in the clinic to um, just kind of flag up any any things that we might spot that look a little bit a little bit different for that player that might match up with symptoms. Um, in terms of screening, I think probably like we've discussed, Ian, we we try and stick with things like um, a weight bearing lunge test and and supination resistance tests. Um, we're delving into the world of toe flexor strength as a screening tool just because there's a few studies that have um, thrown that forward with metatarsal fractures and things as a prospective risk factor. So we've made a, um, a, a rig that can test toe flexor strength. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're the main things at the moment. Um, you want to come with anything else there, mate? Um, save, save me. Let me, let me, yeah, I will. Let me pass, let me pass it on. Just to, yeah, I, I think that we're on shaky ground if we're using it for, as you know, and as Rollbar's papers suggest, screening to predict injury is is um, fairly difficult. I think screening to pick up something that then if you're going to use an intervention on a, on a group level, whether it be a strengthening program or um, individual footwear advice, then, then that's, that's a different story. Yeah, cool. Let me just throw this towards David, if I may. Uh, David, so, sort of, uh, you did 17, 17 pre-seasons in your football career. Mm-hmm. What, what sort of stuff did they consist of? How much foot-level assessment, check, screening was done? Yeah, n- not a lot, really. Um, I, I know it's it's a sort of bigger deal with the bigger clubs these days, but um, there, was, there wasn't really any podiatry involvement within a pre-season screening, as far as I was concerned. 
Um, that's something I'm sort of looking at now, obviously, because of my background and, and, and looking at going to do that. But speaking to the people I know at some of the clubs, it's very much physio-led, strength and conditioning-led. Um, and podiatry can probably be more involved in that process. But um, at the minute, it's not, in, in, in some of the clubs that I'm aware of anyway, it's not really, um, there's not really a lot of the screening that we're involved in, I wouldn't say. Cool. And uh, Trev? You've been around a fair while. Talk me through your your process of, of when you've screened squads um, and, and perhaps how that may have changed over the years, you know, when you, when you did it 20 years ago to when you do it today, perhaps. Well, to be honest, uh, I mean, I think from a functional perspective, the, the physio teams usually have that pretty well covered. So I'm not sure we need to do that. I mean, I think where the real value of us doing the screening is to look at somebody's function uh, and not, and this series a predictor for injury. But as you rightly said, we only see the people once they're injured. So my argument to the club was always, look, you know, if we take a, a range of assessment techniques, so, you know, obviously video is, is a bit thing to have. Um, you'll be aware that I, I use a lot of in-shoe pressure analysis so we can record someone in their trainers in their boots and have a little look at the way they're loading, where the force patterns are. And I, we never use that as a, a predictor, say, right, you've got a high load here, we must do X. My argument was, let me have that online. And if he starts to develop injuries or problems, you could just call me up. I'll pull the data up and I could tell you, you don't have to wait two days to get a book in, you know, et cetera. And it's really about having stuff before they're injured. And what we did in a couple of instances is if we saw something, a bit like Atel said, that could be a potential risk factor. So, for instance, you know, we assess a player who's got a small leg lane, he's flexing one knee more than the other. We're not going to manage that because there's no indication to do it. But I'd say to Fizzo, look, They've got this. If it starts to develop knee symptoms or whatever that may be related to a leg length, then that's something we can jump on sooner rather than later. Instead of waiting three months down the road, oh, guess what? Maybe we ought to call the podiatrists. You know, so I think that the role of screening for me is to have baseline data. I don't think there's a standard. There is a way of doing that. So for me, I use the technology that I had available, uh, which at the, uh, the, the majority of that time would have been in-shoe uh, and video. Um, and some basic clinical tests and just make a record of that. I give them a report uh, and then we wait to hear. Uh, some of the clubs buy into it, a lot don't. You know, part of that's getting the players to come in, you know, trainings a couple of hours a day and then they go. They don't want to stick around till four o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> waiting to be screened. Um, the, the club has to buy into it for, for that to happen or you have to be there on a kind of regular basis. And I, I think I think part of that, that issue now is that there's a lot of clubs, especially sort of the higher end, the, the, the management and staff are so changeable that it's hard to, to sort of really go into any detail on some of these things. And if a manager comes in into a football club and, and decides, look, that's not really what I'm interested in because I might not be here next year, then it's just glossed over and, and move on. And that, to be fair, at all levels of football at the minute, that's a, a major issue. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Lindsay, a bit of a selfish personal question here as well, because I've looked after a men's football team for a few seasons, but this year is the first year I'm looking after a, women, a women's football team, first year for me. And I've been, okay. asked to go in, uh, I've been asked to go in in a couple of weeks' time, actually, and, and, and do, do a pre-season screen for a women's side, which is the first, first time I've yep. ever done it. So, I mean, I'd love to get your take on, on if there's anything that I should be considering. What would, would, would I screen a, a, a woman football any different to a man football? 
Um, there's a few things that you might pick up on that, that's different in terms of um, obviously knowing the incidence of injuries in women's football. So like uh, ACL injuries are obviously quite common in women's football and they think that there is a sort of hormonal link to that and then you get onto the whole sort of female athlete triad sort of issue. So I know back in 2005 when I did go down to Loughborough and we screened the entire England squad pre-European Championship. So I was screening sort of foot problems, so from basic foot issues, so looking out for things like ingrowing toenails, callus formation, just to try and preempt anything that might become a problem. You know, you don't want to be missing a tournament and an important international game because you've developed um, an ingrowing toenail. You know, that would be like a bit of a disaster. So it was about preempting some things like that. Um, but alongside me, they also had sort of sports scientists and physiologists doing things like blood. So, and, and what they did find was quite a high incidence of anemia. So because of the menstrual cycle, so a lot of the females were really low on iron. So then they upped their sort of advice in terms of diet and nutrition. So that was, for me, quite interesting that they were picking up on stuff like that in the screening program. Um, I was there a bit like what Trevor said, just collecting baseline data. So then if any issues did crop up, we'd be able to just reflect back on what we've collected. Has anything changed? Was the signs there that this was going to happen? What can we do now as a prescription? And, you know, was there anything that we could maybe have done as a preventative thing? So if someone's sort of forced pressure plate um, data was massively out from what, what, you know, the recommendations would be, then we might intervene um, sooner rather than later. Or it might be that that would then determine what other advice we gave them in terms of footwear and exercises or football boots that they should be wearing. So a lot of the women um, tend to benefit from a, a little bit of a heel raise being in the boots. So something just as basic as that, you know, or even advising them in terms of a boot that already has a little bit of a raise for a, of a heel drop rather than being a completely flat football boot. So those were the kind of things that we were picking up on. And it was interesting working alongside like the um, the sports physiologists and, and things like that that were also down. So we used to just all gather at Loughborough all at the same time and get the squads together. So some of the girls would be like just in the under 15s. So they're still growing and maturing musculoskeletally wise as well. And, you, you know, even just like tight hamstrings, you know, simple things really that you were picking up on that they can then go away and work on or weak glutes. The female squad, nearly every member will have really weak glutes and core strength so then they'd be started on a core strengthening program um, so I think that can be quite different from the men Sure, yeah, thanks Lindsay Look, we've, just, we've just had a comment come in from Catherine Cook which I'll just expand on a wee bit I mean to me the whole purpose of the screening is to look for modifiable risk factors and then perhaps intervene and modify them but the question she's asked is if you and this probably applies to uh, other sports as well, if you find uh, something that puts them at high, a higher risk for a particular injury, how likely are they then to go on to get that injury if they're told they're at risk for it? So it <laughs> comes back to that use of nocebic language, you know, some of the stuff we've touched on in previous episodes. So if they're at risk, are you going to tell them they're at risk? And so my, my question would be, what factors when we assess foot and ankle function are predictive of injury? Uh, oh, zero. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> So, so I, I've got no danger of getting 
that's deceptive there. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think I think the point is that you know it's like that when we talk about nocebic language and all that kind of stuff. You know, if you well, you're at risk for getting a knee injury. The quick the question about how, how more likely are they to go on and get a knee injury because they're told they're at risk. Um, I guess another I guess another way to frame this question as well is I don't know about anyone else here, I'd love to get your thoughts but when I screen players often I you report back to the medical team I mean how much, how much are you actually giving that information to the player I don't think the player the really yeah I I don't think the player the really often don't care, gets right? that information I think you yeah. screen them you write your report you give it to the you know the head physio or the the doctor and they probably file it and maybe reflect on it a bit but I don't think the player actually ever is told you're at high risk of this because we, you can't really say that anyway. Pro- probably, probably not. But I think if, you know, and, and, and probably you wouldn't highlight that information to them, but I think most players would, if they were given that information, they would pretty much do whatever you're telling them to do if they felt that it was going to benefit the game. So whether that's right or wrong, you know, is, is open for debate. But if, if usually you're wanting to get any sort of small edge that you can, and if somebody was saying a particular risk factor can prevent you from getting a certain injury, then most players would do as they're told, really, to to stay away from it. I can't even get players to look up from their mobile phone, to be honest. How many of these are right, uh, versus how many are more of a direct injury? So if you look at the, the, the spread of injuries, a lot of these are more traumatic or directional or whatever. And therefore, um, they're, they're, they're not in control of that injury as much. So you might have something around ACL that you could be had for that will reduce your risk of it. And I'm sure Atel could tell us stuff about the, the stud surface interaction and stuff that might make a difference. So you could do things along that. But I think it's not, it's not the same as treating a runner that, that you say, right, you've got this risk factor if they're there. And then they go out and they're thinking about it for 26 miles. You know, and, and, and these guys, I mean, a lot of people we treat, they're 23, 24, 25, they're indestructible, right? You know, they're still at that stage of their life. They're the masters of the universe, you know. <laughs> no, you're right. It's a good point. Um, quick, we, we've touched on, on this already. We've touched on putting things in people's boots, orthoses, heel raises, etc. cetera. Uh, and we also touched on it as one of the challenges because we know that players like their boots tight. We know they like them snug. A uh, question came in beforehand. Do, do, do the panel have any... Uh, you know, like life hacks, any orthoses design, any prescription variable hacks for if they're going to put something in, into a boot. Um, Trev, I'll come to you first. Is there anything you always, well, obviously we know, we know it's person specific, but I mean, yeah. for example, I, I will rarely give an extrinsic post. Not not never, but, but rarely. So are there, are there any things you find yourself on the whole doing a lot of the time that, that you would consider a design feature that would be football specific? No, yeah, well, I think from a, a football boot, it's keeping the profile down because of the boot. So I'd agree with you. I mean, I'd minimal with any heel cup. Uh, I think it's pointless, but it just takes up room. Um, I'd really be looking for midfoot control. I mean, boot mods for, uh, to, to change the heel raise as much the same. I've got to be, I've got to, <laughs> treated a few guys just of late and they've had some traditional orthotics and then we've had made up some simple insoles with pour on arch fills and a little <laughs> bit of a pour on wedge and they go can i have four more pairs of those please and they absolutely love and they're hard to get made these days because the labs don't want to do them <laughs> when it comes to work with the the lab owner supports the team so they'll do whatever we ask him to do 
Um, it's quite interesting. So I, I, I think I know, about, I, I know that lad, and I know that team you're talking about. I met him the other day, and he spoke very highly of you. <laughs> <laughs> and the, I think um, I think probably more is less. Uh, it's probably now I, I'd be uh, certainly less aggressive because uh, I think what you can achieve is less. I know one thing we haven't mentioned. I do think it's a factor. We know that most injuries happen in the last quarter of the first half and the last quarter of the second half with fatigue, and we know that there is some evidence that fatigue of foot function can change a bit. So I do wonder whether there's a role for stability inside a boot. Um, and, and therefore that doesn't need much. It just needs a little bit almost, even if it's tactile. Um, to, so you, you may be able to modify that slightly. Cool. Um, Atal, I'll come to you because I know you do a lot of these as well. Any, any thoughts? How about the prefab versus custom made? Are they all custom made for you? You're giving me all the great questions, aren't you? The great I, know, I, know, <laughs> I know you're the best. I know that you won't mind a stitch up. <laughs> not, not only have I got a backing track here now, I've lost my lights, so I'm on fire here. Um, Don't worry, mate. You're nothing to look at anyway, so just your voice is perfect. <laughs> my teeth. Um, uh, listen, um, we're really lucky in that we have... Um, <laughs> We have. Wow. <laughs> Listen, there's the the so much. There's so much. Be a pro. Be a, so be a pro. Be a pro. <laughs> um, we're very lucky in that we have um, some on site orthotic mills in Aspatar. So if players come to visit and we're looking to make something custom made, we can often try. Um, different densities and different um, designs and have them milled. Our, our machine for milling EVA takes about 12 minutes So um, uh, we, and labs on site. So if they have their shoes with them and things, we can do that right away. And so we try to work, um, try to incorporate and design um, intrinsic, I guess, get everything as slim as, as you said, space that's such a premium. And so if we're adding something like a, a two to five PMP or something, we'll try and have that milled right into the into the material itself. And we're really lucky to have a lot of choices of different poly PU of different densities, maybe firm at the heel and softer through to the forefoot and different EBAs. So it's almost a sweet spot where we will we'll design something and work with the player. We can go out on the pitch straight away, which, which is great, and just get that subjective feedback as to, as to what they're looking for. And often it is less bulk. Yeah. And uh, a player that comes to mind recently, actually, he's, a, he's playing in the World Cup at the moment for England. He had had years and years of, of issues with his feet going numb and just cramping. And um, in the end, we just had to get contact with his boot manufacturer. He, he's cave his feet and, and at the dorsum, there's just so much, um, uh, you know, constricting kind of pressure. So in the end, they just added a little bit of depth to his shoe and everything went away straight away. So it was, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's, this is probably seven or eight years worth of, of his feet cramping every time he trains or plays. And it was just a depth issue. Wow. Okay. Um, Lindsay, anything to add? No, just minimalist, really. So, it's you know, there's nothing worse than have, having orthotics made up and then they don't fit in the boots. You know, they need to be as low a profile as possible. Um, you know, and even if they need a, a second pair to wear in their training shoes, so if they're doing a lot of gym work and fitness stuff, in addition to the football, then, you know, they can have a different prescription um, of the same prescription on a different sort of um, spec of orthotic for the running shoes, um, but in the football boots, keep it as minimalist as possible. Cool. And uh, 
bit. You worn out of your career? Are you aware of? Am I what? Sorry? Oh, I missed that. Sorry, just like, David, do you, do you wear devices? You worn them through your career? Do you wear anything? In, did you wear anything in your boots? No, no, I was quite fortunate, really. I never never really had any, any major injuries. So, so no, I didn't. Uh, and a couple of the lads did. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't have to, to worry about that. Cool. Do you think uh, one of the questions that came in, and I'll well, with you, David, I'll pitch it to you because you, you, people often ask how many, often non footballers, when we see them in clean, non sports people often say, how many professional footballers wear these? What percentage of the of the Premier League wear these? We actually, when we did the the Aussie rules, the AFL um, episode a couple of weeks ago, we asked them the same question. I mean, uh, uh, question for everyone, but for you, do you, do you think there's a high percentage of people that wear them now? Do you think things have changed? Do you think if you were playing now compared to 15 years ago, it would be different? Um, possibly. I think I think there's there's more and more people um, wearing them now than than previous. I know, sort of through my time, they were not very common, but Towards the end of my career, at a few football clubs, they were sort of doing screening and pretty much everybody was getting a pair of orthotics. Um, and then they've started to go away from that, whether it's a cost issue or or just an injury-specific thing for people. But um, as a percentage, I'm not, I'm not sure what it would be like today. Um, Trev, how, uh, how are sales of Vasily Pryor doing? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but on a serious note, often when, when, when people say, say I, I, I don't want a custom-made something, perhaps they're not seeing a professional, they're seeing a lower league player who has to pay for them themselves and they're, they're worried about cost. They often say, oh, what's the best prefab? And, and, and it is one of the ones that has the, the, the most slimline design. I mean, is it, is it the one you use? And if not, well, I'm sure it is. But is there any, are there any others that you recommend? Uh, so, I mean... When you join the think tank, they ask you to design an orthotic and they asked me to design one for football boots. And uh, I'd done that much pressure analysis on players uh, over the years that it took me about half an hour to give them the design because players have a very classic load impact inside the boot. So if you think the boot's flat, they wear them one to two sizes too small, they're too narrow, they're too short. So they get high pressure points beneath the hallux because it triggers beneath the first and fifth mets because they get squeezed in and it's a stud and then they get um, an early heel lift <laughs> thank you good job you haven't got my picture on there because that's really bad that's worse than being boring like Glenn Hoddle um, and and <laughs> we, we we know that they're, they're flat boots so basically what I tried to incorporate and when, when they first sent the design back to me it had a heel cut and it just looked bulky and I said well that, that's not going to work because it <laughs> and, and actually it's got those swivel lines on because if it didn't have them on, it just looks flat. It looks like it's just a flat bed. And yeah, you know, I have absolutely no problems using that uh, as a device with players because that's that's what we designed it for. Um, and you know, obviously, can we use it for other people as well for the for the profile? Um, and we did a couple of design features in it, but it was based around the load impacts that we see on on the pressure analysis. And going back to something Atul said, we we did an unpublished study with one of the big boot manufacturers who wanted to make quarter size boots. And what they're actually doing was half size in length and then quarter size in width, so volume. So we were able to test a range of people. The only thing that changed was the volume of the boot by a quarter of a size. And that is on, on its own increases the force, the pressure underneath the foot because it squeaks so much into, into the boot. And then when you think about they're wearing the boots two sizes too small, so now the heel cup's made for a size eight 
but you're wearing it size 10, so it's too loud, it's too low, and the studs don't sit in the right place. There are so many things that change because they wear the boots too small, and that's why we, we wanted a low-profile device. But yeah, So I have no problems using it. Do I use anything else? I mean, I'd probably be if I went for anything else. If I went away from a, 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 uh, an off-the-shelf, I'd probably do that simple insole or some form of bespoke orthotic, but probably with a flexible, low-profile shell. Yeah, cool. Um, Craig, did you want to ask anything else? I cut my free screen's frozen. Is there any, any yeah, questions? No, we've, we've, actually, we've had one question coming in um, on lacing techniques. Any recommendations there? The football, lacing football boots. I mean, you see all the fuss about different ways of lacing running shoes. I don't know whether it's a thing within football or not. David, do you want to take that one first? I don't, uh, to my knowledge, it's not a thing. But yeah. No, not, not, nothing that I'm aware of. No. no. Trev, okay. at all? Lindsay? No, no, no uh, not, not a thing. Okay, I've, I've never had to advise anyone. Yeah, I'm not sure they'd do it if we did, would they? Um, yeah, probably. Well, yeah, you know. While, while we're talking boots, then, because there's, there's, we've got a good, good sort of opportunity here to talk about both uh, your your bespoke boot company, Trev, and also uh, moving to Atoll's research that he does in, you know, with start of the surface interaction. Uh, your company, for anyone that's not aware of it, prior to Lever, uh, there may be some people that have never heard of it, but aren't aware of it. Give, give us a bit of a, an, an abridged history of, of this company and um, and what, what, where it's currently at, if anywhere. <laughs> Very pertinent. Um, <laughs> so, I got approached by a master's student from, from Loughborough who wanted to design a bespoke football boot. And the initial concept was to make a boot that felt tight but fitted better. So you can make it bespoke. And then it kind of morphed into, well, why don't we make the shape of uh, the foot and make it more kind of orthotic orientated? And the biggest problem with that is that you, uh, to get a stub plate, they're all injection molded in the Far East. It's £3,000 a mold. It's impractical. You've got six grand before you start. So we did a bit of work with Formula One, looking at um, carbon fibre, which was okay, but it delaminated. Um, so then we used that technique called rapid prototyping which uh, today would be laser sintering and it's the precursor to 3D printing and basically uh, a laser sintering, you have the plastic that you build up in layers so you can make it as thick or as thin as you want so what we did was we designed in fact uh, our, our subject was um, one of the lady players and we designed uh, the orthotic using our traditional stuff and using pressure analysis and stuff and we then had a program that converted that into a CAD file um, we've got a guy who had a painting and stud system and we turned that into a stub plate. But in order to do that, you then have to have a custom last because all lasts are flat. So we had to have a last made, etc. Um, I mean, it was it's kind of like a concept car. It's like a concept boot. Never met anybody. Didn't think it was a great idea. But I said to the guys when we started, we'll never sell any. And they said, why? And I said, because the players have played six, seven figure sums to wear a pair of boots. They're not going to play a four-figure sum to buy a pair of boots. But they're going to get this. Uh, well, we've got no proof they're going to get this injuries. And uh, in fact, the lady that, that wore it said, well, it's the most comfortable shoe I've ever worn. Because we had, um, for the guys in Australia, I suppose, a shoe type, a kangaroo leather and stuff. And uh, the, the great thing when we launched it, the London College of Fashion, Ray Butch Wilkins, who was a hero of mine, came and did a little introduction. And so um, where are we at? Uh, it could still happen. Uh, it, it requires uh, a set of processes, and, and periodically I get asked. But, you know, it, what's interesting, uh, Nike recently 
did a 3D printed stud plate, uh, just the concept. And that was just flat. All the companies can do it. But it's not in their interest to do it because it's just not cost effective for them. So I reckon we're probably 20 years too, too soon. And it, you know what? I bet if crowdfunding had been here, maybe it would have been a different matter. Yeah. Um, at all, your research, I know it's intense, I know it's part of your PhD. Bear in mind, a lot of our audience probably aren't as scientifically minded as, as, as you, uh, myself included. Um, give us a real idiot's summary of, of, of your research that, that's looked into the interactions between the boot and the surface, if, if, if that's possible. Yeah, sure. And I might, um, I might try and share my screen here. Um, you can let me know if it's happening. We got yeah, it? looks good. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. Uh, sorry about again about the noise, lads. If it's washing out, let let me know. Um, really, uh, I'm a I'm a clinician. I, I work in the clinic, and I've come late to research. Um, doing a part time PhD, which is nearly finished now. And Aspatara have been great in that they took a bit of a punt and took me on as a research scientist before I, you know, truly finished my PhD. So at the moment, I spend a couple of days in the clinic um, and a couple of days doing research. Um, and really the stories came from, from clinical stories. I'd have players through with, you know, significant knee injuries or syndesmotic ankle injuries and hear a story. And, and, gen, and often they'd have a story about the shoe they were in when the, when the injury happened, the mechanism of injury, the, the surface conditions that day. Quite often they'd have a video to show me. And I just thought um, in listening to them, and I think as podiatrists we're in a bit of a unique position in that we get to, quite often meet our players time and time again. Um, my wife is a musculoskeletal GP and she has a lot less time. So we can really get to know some of these players and get their full story. Um, and it really just drove some questions on what, what I might like to look at and, and what we could possibly measure objectively. So um, got interested in looking at, at this, whether there's an optimal zone of, of, of traction. So I wanted to, in the end, see if we could get to a stage where we could work out um, is there for a given, you know, shoe and surface combination and a, and a certain player movement zones of friction or traction that, um, you know, help performance but minimise injury risk? So with traction, it's just it's just like friction between the shoe and the surface, but with a studded shoe, and we need a certain amount of it, obviously, to um, to perform a task. Too little and we slip over, and too much it can feel a little bit sticky. Um, there's two components of traction. I'll just quickly run through this in just in case people don't know. Um, uh, linear or translational traction is the kind of straight line component of traction, which is often um, thought about in, uh, with performance, so acceleration and deceleration. And there's also rotational traction, which um, generally we link to, to more proximal structures being injured or that story of foot fixation. So the studs getting stuck in the grass while, while uh, proximal structures rotate. And that's probably what's implicated for anterior cruciate ligament injury or other rotational injuries. So we started off with a systematic review, searched through all the literature that of any cleated sports, Australian rules football, American football, soccer, etc., to try and see if people have objectively measured traction. So actually, you know, taken the shoes, rotated them in the surface, got an, got an actual number, and then injury data along with that. And it turns out that um, this study for for British Journal of Sports Medicine, um, once we pooled the, the data, um, there's about 5,000 athletes. And if indeed, if you had a, a, if the shoe and the surface came together, the characteristics of those to make high traction, um, you were more likely to be injured. So I wanted to drill down on that a bit more. 
Um, this is a machine we had made by Ned Frederick, who's the editor of Footwear Science, and he sent it over to Aspatar to us, and we started to kind of rotate shoes and um, to test the rotational traction of them and also drag the shoes in a straight line to test the linear traction. So we can do that internal rotation, external rotation, and also the straight line and, and start to put some figures on all different types of shoe outsoles and things. Um, as an example, one of the studies we found that had done this in the past, an American football study, um, and this is a, a fantastic study by Bill Wannup, he actually picked up the shoes of the athletes, took them to the ground they'd play on, um, loaded them onto a machine that Adidas had, had um, made for them, and the rotational traction of the group uh, that were much higher, there was more injuries per 1,000 game exposures, as you can see. For us, it's really interesting. There's, there's, there's no data for soccer. So there's certainly studies in which people have, have taken a boot and rotated or looked at surfaces by themselves, but not put that all together with injury epidemiology. Um, probably a plausible explanation for why some of these structures may be injured is that the, the the higher shoe and surface combinations tend to put increased force on certain structures. So like an ACL, we find that the higher shoe and surface friction gives more force when you're doing a 180-degree cut. And we've looked at this with cadavers as well with certain football shoes and top share. There we go. There we go. Um, two questions that come off the back of that. The first is, uh, obviously, you guys in Qatar have the, the next World Cup in 2022. So I'd like to know, you know, how much of this is going to influence the pitches we see there? And secondly, you know, within the world of running, we've always talked about, uh, you know, tuning the surface to people. Uh, I know, you know, they did it, they did it at Harvard, they tuned the running track. And obviously, it's very individual. And obviously, we've got 22 players on, on one surface. So what's the philosophy here where they're trying to sort of uh, are they trying to minimise injury, increase performance, both? And how do they hope to do that for 22 different individuals? 23 if you correct. Yeah, really, really difficult. Um, and good question. I've probably got one or two more slides I can share with you on that. Um, uh, one second, guys. And, why, and also, second part to that question, at all, yeah. for the for the for the for the minions, uh, the, like myself included, that don't have all this cool stuff that you've got access to at Aspatile, how does this how does this guide us to advising our players? You know, what, what's the clinical take home? How can we apply this? Uh, uh, you know, at, at, at grassroots, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> <I'll>, um... <laughs> totally, totally unintentional pun, but that, that was actually I'll, brilliant. I'll, I'll get to that. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> So we're lucky a lot of these hybrid surfaces have been put into a turf nursery that we have at Aspatar um, that we can test. Um, there's quite a lot of different hybrid surfaces now. Um, some are adding all different fibres like cork and different things to try and, um, as you said, with the, with the leg stiffness, their idea was that there would be some energy return if they added cork fibres through. Um, and that was interesting. Just there's a little clash between the physics of that and also just what happens to the grassroots when there's wet cork fibers there. So there's different things going on there. Um, as far as what we measure and what goes into, you know, guiding what, what will possibly happen, there's all sorts of things that, that are measured for hardness and, and, and resistance and, and so forth in lots of different areas on the pitch. And then we try and see what happens to those um, after, after wear and also try and see how the, how the football boots respond to that. This is just a little, this is the first World Cup stadium and, and a little machine that measures 3,000 points on the, on the surface. Um, and so all this data is feeding back at the moment to try and work out, can we, can we get some 
some windows, um, I guess, that suit most people. So the average football player is a, is a certain weight and height and we can have a look at how much force they produce um, and these sorts of things. But you're right, we, we're certainly providing a, a broad window and a stab in the dark as to where where that that, that sweet spot is. And, and, and it's not, of course, won't be tailored to the individual um, because everyone's so different in, with their movement strategies. So I don't think we can tune it as far as, you know, individually like the, the, the Harvard track was, but um, we're getting closer to, to being able to provide information to medical teams that might at least help them choose their footwear. So I guess one of the big things we've found from it is if you have a, a, certain, uh, a certain pitch set up and you can provide that information, then really there's two things that are shoe and surface interaction. The other is the footwear they choose to, to use on that surface and they can choose them wisely. So we have a, a very high friction surface. We probably shouldn't also have a high friction shoe and vice versa. We're starting, starting to use some sensors and things on the field as well, Ian. So when we have players out, we're trying to you know get out of the labs and onto those pitches um, using some wireless sensors that, the, the little I measure you on sample with a thousand hertz for accelerations and decelerations. And these newer PDAR load cells are getting up to about 200 hertz now in, in a wireless configuration. So we're getting closer to being able to get some meaningful data on the, on the pitch. But coming back to your question about how, you know, if we don't have any of these toys, what should we, what should we do? At the moment, I think one of the best bets is still to run a, a functional traction course that Sturzing came up with. So literally for a certain pitch condition, put on a certain pair of boots, run this traction course and rate it, and then you can try other boots if you like. But um, in my experience, that if we have a good listen to the players, that they're pretty good at telling you what, what works for them and what feels about right. Um, and, and that even goes for, for, for perhaps too much traction. They sort of have very good intuition. And I think we probably uh, neglect that sometimes for the objective data. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Um, we've had a question come in um, from Lars, and it's sort of relevant because it's talking about studs. Um, and it's what are the experiences um, in moving or grinding down studs? I've certainly, in, in lower league players, taken the stud plate to my grinder and taken a stud away from underneath the first MTPJ with, with a sesamoid problem. But I found that the higher the higher the level the play, the higher the level the player is playing at, the less likely they are to, to let me do it. I might just come to you, David, and sort of ask what your response would have been as a player if some, one of us had tried to, to take a, your favourite pair of boots to the grinder. What's the, what's the like response? A, yeah, like I said before, I think if, if you justify it and, and tell me that it's going to work, for, for most players, you, you would buy into that. It, it, it comes down to comfort, though, again. So if you, if you notice a difference, because... It is really difficult with football boots because um, you do want them to be really tight. You want them to be really flat. Um, and that, that has an impact on the surface that you're playing on as well. So there's not a lot of um, modifications I think you can make with without you having an impact then with the ball and how that feels on your feet and how your movement feels. So so it is it is it is difficult. But again, if, if you justify it in the, in the right way, I think most players would buy into small uh, alterations but nothing, cool. nothing major that's going to influence <laughs> the technique or how the ball feels yeah. or how it runs um, Lindsay uh, anything to add you, your experience of do, do you take do you take uh, do you modify stud plates much uh, no I haven't done but there, there was an incident um, 
sort of a, a case example, I suppose, back probably World Cup 2006, where high-end Premier League player, international World Cup, having loads of issues with his feet. And um, he was sponsored. And it, we established the boots were a real issue, but he was sponsored. And he, he tried to go to court to get out of his sponsorship wasn't particularly an option. So we had to go down the boot, uh, the route of we found an alternative boot and an alternative company and they ended up more or less branding an alternative mm-hmm. boot with his sponsorship so that he still fulfilled his sponsorship requirements but had a boot that he could wear. So that was quite an interesting sort of case. Nice. Um, so there are ways of working around these things. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an extreme yeah. way. Any, any, any gold from you over the years on this one, trip? <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, I, I've, I've got a picture somewhere of uh, taken from um, the West Ham boot room one time, where the uh, the boot the kit man used to take a moulded pair of boots, uh, saw off a couple of the moulded studs, drill a hole, put a rivet in it, and put some screwing studs in so the player could have a mixture of <laughs> of studs. Uh, I think sometimes. Um, when they're wearing the boots the wrong size, so the stub position, it depends on the stud configuration. So I might look at them and say, right, you, you need your stub position to be different because of where it's laying. So you've got a sesamoid problem, you've got a stud right underneath it, you might want to look at that. And I had one classic case. Um, it was in a, it, it wasn't soccer, but it wasn't too far from soccer of a, a, a player that had fractured his fourth mat tarsal four times and they plated it and fractured the plate. And uh, when we did the assessment, his feet were that wide. He had to wear boots that were three sizes too big. And uh, even then, his fifth met hung over the uh, outside of the boot. And the fourth metatarsal head was right over the stud. And every time the ground got hard, he fractured his metatarsal. And I got a nice PDAR picture of the, the spike underneath there. And we took the stud out and the spike went. He went, are you telling me that's it? I'm afraid so. <laughs> Awesome. Um, <clears throat> moving away from studs, because this question is coming from Jill, uh, who we started the show with, you know, with saying that you sounded like Glenn Hoddle, obviously. Not and, uh, to so I think it's only fair that we answer her question because she gave us that, that imagery. Um, does anyone have any access to heart rate variability measures and the effects of orthosis use? I gather there's emerging evidence about this objective measure to predict injury. Um, certainly. Uh, you know, we know this data is being collected by, by, by the sports scientists and things, but uh, I've never heard of, in, in the clubs I've worked with of any linkage between that data and, and orthosis use. Um, Lindsay, is that something you're familiar with? Have you come across that at all? No, not really. But I mean, the, the kind of environment I see the players now that I see, they come to my clinic, so I'm not going into clubs so much. So I'm not having that interaction with the other members of the the sort of the multidisciplinary team like I was when we gathered at Loughborough and I went into clubs. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I know that they collect an awful lot of data now. The sports scientists, you know, it's all about strength and conditioning now and they love collecting data and analysing data. So there may be something in it. Yeah. Any, anyone else got anything to add on that? Any experience? Silence. No one wants. No one wants that one. Sorry, Jill. Um, any other? Any other questions, Craig? No. There's 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 a few there, but I think they've sort of been touched on. Um, actually, one to finish on would be um, Simon Dickinson's mentioned about uh, the vicular stress fractures. So he's just pretty much asked, how would you retreat 
treat a recovering navicular stress fracture in a footballer who's trying to increase their load fitness. So maybe um, go around the room. Any pearls for navicular stress fractures in footballers? Who wants uh, that one first? Care- <laughs> I would treat it carefully, yeah. Um, yeah that, that's a it's difficult, and of course it depends on the, on the, the circumstances. Um, although we did do a, a study looking at use of um, anti-gravity sort of alter G treadmills in when you're increasing load slowly, um, coming back from metatarsal stress fractures and things, and that could probably um, go for any bony stress injury of the foot. We've got a table that's open access um, on how you can, if you have access to an alter G treadmill, how you can increase load slowly um, and follow this follow this guide. So that would be you know one thing to do is not spike the load on on, on the on the return. Uh, a lot of the clubs at library they they have treadmills in the swimming pool. Mm. So rather than an alter G, the treadmill goes up. Now, I thought I think that's pretty cool, but I don't know yeah. how to stop it from uh, electrocuting the players. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, my view would be that if you've got uh, somebody who's had a navicular stress fracture and they have a particularly mobile midfoot, then I think I'd probably just want to support the midfoot, just cut down some. I think if they've already got a stiff midfoot, you're probably not going to be able to do much with that. Um, but So I'd, I'd look for the mobile midfoot and maybe support that if, if that was it. Because Jill's work, um, well, Clive, uh, all the times I've played with England, just a quick Glenn Hodder impersonation. Um, <laughs> in Jill's work, yeah, where, where they looked at midfoot bone edema and, and how they can reduce midfoot bone edema in, in patient midfoot pain uh, with orthosis. So we know we can't do it. Um, midfoot mechanics with orthoses so I think I'll be looking for, for those that had a mobile midfoot yeah uh, David any experience with these either you know as a, as a clinician no not really I, I guess it depends on, on the level with that though as well with, with the football clubs and, you know the anti-gravity um, I know a lot of the big clubs have that type of facilities where you're going lower down and that's not a possibility it, it's difficult uh, from a load management point of view, because as a player, you, you're desperate to just get back, so um, you sometimes don't want to listen to the specialists that uh, are telling you that you need to take it easy. Um, and in your mind, if you're telling yourself that you're right to, to get out there, you, you you might not be willing to listen to uh, to data that contradicts that. Yeah. Um. And Lindsay, I guess this is where the potential sort of female athlete athlete triad or yeah, we, yeah. comes into play. In the Euros 2005, we had a navicular stress fracture during the um, finals in the championship. Um, she went for an MRI scan. It confirmed sort of bony edema, stress fracture of the navicular. We did some pressure plate stuff with her and she did, as Trevor said, have a mobile midfoot. So we were able, we obviously wouldn't have had time to get custom-made orthotics and time was when we were talking initially about challenges I always think with the professional footballers it's time is one of the biggest challenges because they want to be better like yesterday and so we just used a prefab and we did actually manage to get her through the championships and then she just took the time off to rest and and afterwards there was no way she was not going to play so we just had to do everything we could that's for the purpose of people listening, Lindsay. Can I just check? Was it a stress fracture or a stress lesion? Uh, stress oh. fracture. Yeah. Um, actually, the, the, the word anti-G, anti-gravity treadmills we mentioned, I just 
just for those of you not familiar with them, do, Athel, do you want to explain how they work? Uh, yeah, so you step on the, onto the, the deck of the treadmill and um, you're in some neoprene shorts that have a zip, so you zip into a chamber and the the deck weighs you so you can get your body weight and then the chamber blows up around you and you can punch into the machine that you want 50% of your body weight taken off and some positive pressure is added to the chamber and it, it effectively lifts you by your by your undies, by your pants. Um, so it lifts you up in the air and takes some weight off. Um, our study, we looked at the, the vertical ground reaction force and contact times and things and it doesn't quite, it's not 50-50, so if it says 50% body weight, it's probably more like a third but we do have some uh, we've we've got a table there that people have put up on their clinic room next to it that kind of shows how to progress load, and we've just done it in in body weight. So you know this running speed is whatever 1.8 times body weight, and this is 2.4 times body weight, and how how to step that up. Sure. Handy. We've got one us. of the we we got one in London, uh, and your your little table you referred to at all from your published paper in the Journal of Sports Sciences is, is is laminated and stuck on it. You'd be pleased oh. to hear. Thanks very much. Um, just a really quick pertinent point for Alter G treadmills. We really just to use our brain still and our clinical reasoning. Um, that I think they're seen as people think we can unload everything. And actually, we did some EMG studies as well with them and found, of course, that that there's certain muscles that are used for swing. You still have to swing your limb through. So the, you know, not everything is unloaded basically. So your um, adductors and your hamstrings and muscles that are used in swing, if you're running a bit faster. They're, they're not unloaded. So we just have to use our brain a little bit with how we're using them. For bone stress injuries, they can be really good, though. Actually, I've just, I've just seen this image here. They're not just for athletes as well. They can be used for a lot of other um, <laughs> patient populations. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Craig, I know you're, you're looking at the time and getting anxious because you do about this time. I've got to give yeah. a, someone, I've got to give someone a quick shout-out. I don't know who they are, though. This is a bit weird, but I've just had a message from Kylie Williams who is in New Zealand at the conference there having breakfast. And she's just messaged me saying, I'm at breakfast and someone beside me is watching Pod Chat Live. I don't know who <laughs> they are, but if you're sitting next to, uh, if you're sitting next to or near Kylie Williams at a New Zealand conference at breakfast, we will thank you for watching. We all just want to say hi. I did message her back I did message her back and ask her to get the name so I could give a formal shout out because she hasn't got back to me. But yeah. That's, that's what I wanted to say. Oh that's we it's seven past uh, sorry, eight past seven in the morning for me here now. I'm supposed to wake my girls up at seven to get them off to school. So it's probably a good time to finish. So, look, thanks very much, guys. We've, we've had a, actually a lot of people watching live. There are a few unanswered questions um, there, but perhaps we can go back and answer those later. Um, for those of you who have joined late, come back in 10 minutes. The whole video will be there. Um, Facebook, render it. We'll put, it'll be up on YouTube um, for about three or four hours. Um, so thanks very much. Thanks, um, Lindsay. Thanks. Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca. Her name's Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thanks, Ethel. <laughs> thanks, David. Thanks, Lindsay. And thanks, Trevor. It's been a... Everything's, thanks, gone, everything's gone very, very quickly. Oops, hang on. I've just got to...